0: What if we turned farm waste into safe, clean cooking gas and organic fertiliser, locking up carbon and improving health and prosperity? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. It's episode 99. Welcome back and thanks to our growing band of regular listeners. And if you're new to this podcast, thanks for downloading. In this episode, we hear from Ben Jeffries, a multi-award winning social entrepreneur making better things happen. Right now, he's focused on decarbonizing cooking, which is a leading cause of illness and death for women and children. The World Health Organization says around a third of the global population cook using open fires or inefficient stoves fuelled by kerosene, biomass and coal. That generates harmful household air pollution and inhaling these toxic fumes kills more people than malaria. It also creates emissions in the form of black carbon of up to 2.4 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent every year. On top of that, women and children often spend many hours each week collecting biomass for cooking and more hours doing the cooking on open fires. So Ben and the ATEC team started by getting clear on what was wrong with existing biodigesters, in particular in regions like Cambodia that are prone to annual floods. ATEC looked at how nature already solves this, and use those principles to create a groundbreaking biodigester design. Ben explains how ATEC has come up with other innovations, including using the internet of things to make the solution more affordable and circular, with potential for carbon credits. We'll hear about the many benefits for farmers and local households, how to design for unintended uses of manure, the role of methane in the environment and some of the challenges of social media and social enterprise. Before starting ATEC, Ben Jeffries held leadership positions in strategy and growth with the likes of Oxfam, School for Social Entrepreneurs, and Westfield. Ben describes his approach as unashamedly impatient and bold and he believes that modern, decarbonised cooking can be a reality for a further 4 billion people by 2030. To Ben, this is not a pipe dream, but a technically solvable problem through disruptive technology, financial innovation, carbon markets and e-commerce. As well as being a trailblazer in his field, Ben is a family man and puts purpose first – taking a big leap back in 2015 when moving his young family to Cambodia to found the business. So please welcome Ben Jeffries of Atec. I'd love to start off by asking you how Atec works and how you're using circular approaches to create value um, for all the people that you're serving
1: yeah thanks Catherine so yeah so even though I'm I'm based in Australia these days um, we originally set it up in Cambodia we work mostly in the, the developing world uh originally was living in Cambodia when we set it up uh, and we do uh biogas digesters uh, for small-scale farmers is is one of the products and I think the one most relevant to the to the podcast today. Uh, in particular, looking at how farmers can take their their waste, be that uh, predominantly manure from animals, cows, pigs being the main ones, uh, kitchen waste and uh, crop waste, and then convert that into uh, biogas, which they can then use uh, for cooking uh, in their household, much like you would normally LPG. Uh, and then each system produces around 20 tonnes of organic fertilizer uh, per year. Uh, for the for the household or for the farm as well. Um, so that's a high-quality organic fertiliser. It's actually got an increased uh, bioavailability of nutrients compared to just using cow manure alone. Uh, and then the other really big benefit, which is sort of would seem at some level side benefit, but to a farmer it's a very big benefit, is that extra di- digestation that goes through the, the biogas digester actually breaks down the grass seeds. So if you apply cow manure to your rice fields, you then have to weed it for all the grass, etc. while if you've put it through a biodigester, uh, it's automatically taken care of that as well. So uh, that's another big benefit from there. And really for us, our, our focus, we're a social enterprise. We were founded by um, myself and Engineers Without Borders and Live and Learn, which are two uh, charity organisations as well, uh, around actually looking to uh, really help uh sort of small-scale farmers to to live better lives lives for themselves and their families uh and really take advantage of the resources that they had on hand uh and using technology to do that. And that's what ATEC stands for is appropriate technology
0: uh, as such. Sounds amazing and um I'm already kind of putting biodigester on my wish list for for my veg plot um because we don't get our compost heap hot enough to kill off the weed seeds either. Um, Ah, so um so yeah i can even even on a tiny scale i can imagine the um the you know the massive benefits for farmers from that um so um can we just come come back a stage because you you were talking about the um uh you know being able to use the biogas to heat stoves and so on in the house so for people who are not familiar with um, the kind of the you know the traditional cooking methods used in places like Cambodia and, and so on um, you know what would they have been using instead of biogas
1: yeah so, so traditionally in, in the countries where I mean we predominantly work in Cambodia and Bangladesh and in those countries people are generally using wood for cooking uh, it's kind of their traditional priority they're just Trees, cutting them down, much like you would for a campfire uh, style cooking, or or buying charcoal that's been sort of uh, created and treated uh, into charcoal as well. So, so that's traditionally what people use use for cooking in these in these countries. Uh, obviously, that is a very large environmental uh, impact. Uh, it's uh, in, in a country like Cambodia, it's a, a leading cause of deforestation, and uh, then leads to soil. Erosion and wash off as well, Um, and then at the same time, it's also uh, has a huge impact on the health, particularly of women, uh, of cooking with uh, biomass on a day to day basis. So, um, it's actually the leading cause of premature death of women uh, globally. Um, It's around four and a half million women die per year from smoke related illnesses uh, related to cooking with wood.
0: Mm, Wow, that's that's um, a big number, and I suspect that you know the real numbers even more, isn't it? Because um it, it can often be an underlying cause that's not identified specifically. Um, and once they've got the, um, the biodigester, um, you know, how, how does that work? Do you sell it to them or do they get it another way?
1: Yeah, so so our biodigesters is a tech-enabled biodigester that um, uh, does a couple of things. Um, number one. Uh, it has a payments integration with it, so that's something we sort of designed after working with households over a period of time is we saw the really big benefit of, of the, the biogas digested household uh, can improve their monthly income anywhere from $20 to $50 US dollars a month. Um, and uh, But what they needed to be able to do is they couldn't afford this, typically the upfront cost of the system, so being able to break it down into small monthly payments. Uh, for the farmers was a key thing, so that sort of pay-as-you-go integration uh, was a key thing that we sort of brought in from a technology perspective. Um, and then the other part that we've then brought in as well is then around um, actually carbon credits uh, integration into that as well. So that's the for effectively we're capturing methane um, from uh, that would otherwise release into the atmosphere, particularly with cow manure. Uh, we're stopping trees from being cut down. Uh, and then you're effectively burning that gas um, uh, into to lower impact uh, sort of gas and water. Uh, and around through that process, you're generating around four to seven tonnes of greenhouse gas emission reductions per biodigester per year. So we're able to take that and then uh, sell those credits to uh, on, on the carbon credit markets um, and be able to utilise that money to, to help fund the
0: biodigester uh, to
1: the customer as well.
0: Wow, that's, that's another impressive um, angle that you've used to kind of build in more, more value for the customer. And how durable are the biodigesters? How long do they last for?
1: Yeah, so it's, a, it's an interesting point, and that's that's something we came up with. Uh, so if you look, biodigesters are not a, a new technology as such. They've been around for about 50, 60 years since so the first ones were built. And they were always originally built uh, with uh, sort of bricks and concrete, um, and if you build one of them really well, it's it's a fairly complicated design to get right because uh, you are dealing with a, a level of pressurized gas. Um, but if you build it right, they can last for 20 for odd years. Um, the big challenge though, is in the countries where we work, as people are probably aware, uh, Cambodia and Bangladesh get a lot of seasonal rain, they're monsoonal countries, uh, and you get a lot of soil movement between wet season and dry season. And that's where bricks and concrete, particularly to be gas tight, don't perform particularly well Um, so from the reports we've seen around sort of one in five to one in ten biodigesters are only working over an extended period of time in those traditional methods just because of uh, those changes in soil conditions leading to uh, sort of breakage issues uh, within the sort of gas tightness of the system and once you lose that gas tightness effectively the system becomes redundant. So so we actually made the decision to make our tanks out of a durable material, which is linear low-density polyethylene. It's a type of plastic. Um, But the the thinking behind that was um, uh, that with being able to do it in this material, uh, we'd be able to provide a a material that could actually change with the changing conditions in the soil uh, around the biodigester over the course of the year and give farmers a, a sustainable solution. And for us, then weighing that up of then looking at, um, obviously there's some uh, carbon emissions related to generating the product, but we saw that that was significantly outweighed by the carbon emission reductions from using the product, uh, plus then the ability to be able to use it over an extended period of time or convert it into other uh, sort of useful goods, uh, sort of uh, post post product life cycle as well, which is. We say around twenty to
0: twenty-five years uh, on each product. Mm, so that's that's a um, you know good length of durability, isn't it? And just so I understand, when you said um, the material can change with the soil conditions, um, can you unpack that a bit, or, or do you mean more more about its resistance to the um, the moisture and the soil ingress and so on?
1: Yeah, it's a semi-rigid uh, material. So if you, um, I'm sure you've probably got them in the UK, like those plastic water tanks, not mm. not the fiberglass ones, but the plastic ones. Um, if you kind of knock them over, they kind of bounce a bit. Um, so they're a bit, a, able to sort of flex a bit because as the uh, soil is wet during monsoon season, it puts pressure on the tank and then moves in the other direction. Right. In
0: yeah. So it's a more flexible and resilient material. Great. Um, yeah, and if something does go wrong, are they repairable by the farmers? How, how would that work?
1: Yeah. So, so we offer a um, three year warranty uh, on the systems uh, and then we provide further post sales support as well. Depends what the issue is. If it's relatively minor, the farmers can fix it themselves. Probably the most common one is just a blockage in the system. Uh, at some stage which farmers can do themselves
0: but if there's any technical issue we can we can come and fix that for them Mm, that's that sounds that sounds um reassuring for the farmers because i can imagine um different technology and and so on is is you know a bit of a sticking point with do i do i do i um you know invest in this new system that i'm not familiar with um and where Mm. did the ideas come from um and for the yeah, biodigester so for us- itself sorry that being, being, yeah it wasn't not the idea sorry. for the business but for the the design you know the, the different design compared to um, the other biodigesters that you described
1: yeah so for us it actually started off um in, as I mentioned engineers with our who, who's one of our our founding organizations um, started off with a, a what's called a design challenge so it was actually getting university students uh, who, who went on a trip over to Cambodia and particularly were looking at floating villages uh, in Cambodia, which are on the, the main lake in, in Cambodia called Tom Lesap. Uh, and they had some significant uh, sort of challenges around that, around uh, sort of both gas for cooking, but then also waste treatment uh, in those areas as well. So it was through that setup um, or, or that particular challenge and working with local partners at that stage um that we we started to investigate okay well biodigester might be a good solution here we looked at what was already available because generally as a a design principle with uh, appropriate technology looking to do the most simplified low-cost readily available solution possible which would have been using say bricks and concrete which is readily available but we we could see that that was not leading to a a sustainable outcome so from that we then moved into the, the plastic type uh, we did some early prototypes, um, and then when we went to actually commercially scale it, we almost had to throw out the prototypes and start again, which was, a, I think, a pretty typical thing from a, a sort of engineering design perspective. Because what works at a prototype stage, where you can be very hands-on and fiddly, you just can't really transfer into a commercially manufacturing uh, sort of level product. So, so that was quite a, quite a crazy experience to go through. Me and, and Lockie, who was our lead engineer at the time, of effectively going, we've got a product, and then we had to basically start again from the same design principles, but start again from scratch, scratch mm. from a manufacturing perspective.
0: Yeah, because I guess you've got to design it for people who, um, you know, might might um, unwittingly use it use it wrongly. I'm, I'm remembering a story I mm-hmm. heard, um, I think it was uh, from the author of a book about uh, serendipity and how you can kind of use that differently. And, um, mm. he was talking about a washing machine manufacturer and how they were suddenly getting lots of complaints from China um mm. with people saying, "You know the washing machine's b- broken down when and um you know they were they were going to investigate, and they were full of soil, and they were finding out that the farmers were using them to wash potatoes, so rather <laughs> rather than deciding to." Um, just put it really you know on the front page of the instructions or on the sales info that you know this is for washing clothes not potatoes they decided Mm. to to develop a specific machine that would be good at washing potatoes and filtering out all the soil so that was kind of the serendipity thing Um, but yeah these kind of you know unintended uses or ways that people people use the product Mm. Uh, can really yeah, exactly. really trip up the that you know the careful design that's been created by an engineer who knows that you know well clearly it would be silly to do x <laughs> um yeah. but but now perhaps we need to think about well what if people do do x yeah so yeah yeah
1: I, and i i think the lesson we learned quickly and thankfully we took um what's called the some lean startup principles in there was like rather than design the perfect system design something that's hopefully passable and then just get it out there and see what happens uh and just do that with a select group of early adopters and so we went through that i think we went through effectively four designs within that first 12 months uh before we had something really that was commercially that we could scale
0: Mm. yeah that sounds good and um i think when we talked a few months ago ahead of the, the podcast you were also talking about the design ideas um, coming from, you know, understanding and trying to mimic the process that goes on in a cow's stomach in terms of how cows naturally biodigest things.
1: Mm. Yeah, effectively, a, a, a biogas digester is just another version of a stomach. Um, it's an anaerobic chamber. Uh, and that, that's, again, why that, that sort of air tightness is very important. You have to have an anaerobic setup uh, so that the bacteria can work efficiently. Uh, And really you're just taking the, the, and this is the beauty of the system is you don't need to have some special input or whatever you're literally using cow manure, uh, which has that natural uh, sort of range of anaerobic bacteria. It's actually multiple different types of bacteria. Uh, in there that are called methanogenic bacteria that effectively convert waste into methane, which mm. is, is what you're we're looking to get. Methane's actually not smelly; that's a common misconception. It's actually uh, there's no smell. It's actually the sulfur dioxide in gas that gives it that smell. Um, uh, but yeah, so getting that methanogenic bacteria up and running is is sort of the key to doing that, which is effectively what cows do mm. uh, really, really well. So um, so even if you're uh, using say if you've got a pig farm, you're using pig manure. You'll actually start it. You'll get some cow manure to start the system, then slowly introduce in the pig manure uh, to to the bacteria, and then they'll just adapt to that. They're they're pretty resilient little creatures. Mm. Uh,
0: so you can go yeah, from bacteria are amazing, aren't they? And uh, we're we're starting to realise just how valuable they are for all sorts of mm. things. Um, yeah. And for people who might be worried about. Um, you know because we're starting to hear quite a bit about methane um as a greenhouse gas and the and the you know difficulties around that, so as mm. I understand it, once methane is burnt um it then you know isn't problematic. The problem comes from when methane is just um allowed to escape whether that's from you know the back end of a cow or from um mm. some of the refineries and so on that are um releasing methane is, have I got that yeah. right?
1: Good, correct so so yeah so what we're trying to do is um I mean there's a lot of talk because I think it's hu- probably humorous about cows farting or whatever the case is it's mm-hmm. actually burping is is one of the main releases but the other big release is actually um uh from the manure so as as the cows do their normal business it's actually then just aspirating from the manure so what we're doing is grabbing that and then that that uh methane so some of that methane there is is then captured in the tank but then most importantly usually methane is then released as the manure decomposes over uh, over the next few days so we're then bringing that into the biogester and capturing that which is the same as how natural gas uh is produced that's just done millions of years ago but it's mm. actually the exact same process uh mm. that we're going through there so so that's how we're capturing it I think for us globally there's um Obviously, uh, like we, we need to look at this at an um, agricultural level. I think um, methane is around 50 to 100 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than, um, than uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, the upside of that, at least, I think it only lasts in the atmosphere for 20 years, so it is a shorter lifespan than carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but a lot more potent. Um, but I think probably the biggest challenges we've got on the methane front is actually number 1 looking at um uh, methane leakages from natural gas fields uh, that's a that's a really significant problem uh, that, that is going mm. uh sort of a lot of the time uh, on, on, as a production of using natural gas uh and then yeah the um i think a big one hopefully we don't have to deal with if we do things right is then the um the defrosting of uh siberia and other areas where there's mm. large, large peat moss bulbs as well that could have a, a huge impact of methane release into the atmosphere as well
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a a lot of focus, isn't there, now, kind of um, on um, the greenhouse gases beyond just the, you know, the the carbon one that people have been Mm. focused on. And so, Ben, I'm curious to know how did you come to be, you know, involved in this out in Cambodia and so on? What what brought you to this?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, So, as I mentioned, engineers without borders and live and learn had done some initial prototyping. Uh, and that was that was uh, over a decade ago. And it sort of kind of was on and off as a as sort of a, a typical grant funded project. Um, and then they were able to um, secure some seed funding, some grant funding to actually then turn it into a, a sort of commercial product and a social enterprise. And it was at that time I had no, no specific interest in uh biogas as such my business is a bit more on the background uh sorry my background is a bit more on the business side um but yeah for for me once i heard about the product and the 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 sort of higher level of both social and environmental impact that could be achieved uh, and it was a good time for me we just had our uh, second daughter uh, and we were looking to to move over into uh into asia and have a bit of experience with our with our kids over there Um, so it sort of lined up well, and I thought, hey, why not? Let's move move the family over to Cambodia and give this thing a go and see what happens. At The the worst end of the spectrum is we just have an adventure. Um, Maybe the business doesn't work out, and, yeah, here we are seven, eight years later, and it's it's still going strong, uh, which is really, really exciting, and I think the carbon side of things when I started was, as far as carbon credits go, was – uh talked about as a really high potential thing but people really hadn't got their heads around carbon credits and carbon markets more broadly um i think that that's now become a really serious uh sort of sector uh moving forward there's there's still some growing pains there that are, that are occurring mm-hmm. um but overall putting a price on carbon and and making it a, a tradable commodity uh in my view is a, a big step towards us actually accelerating uh solutions to uh, sort of solving the climate change challenge
0: mm. and have you got an easy way of of measuring those um, you know in order to pay the farmers how, how have you how have you developed that yeah
1: it depends on the technology we use um, uh, on on one end uh, we have a IOt uh, stove which actually then measures down down to the second exactly how much people are using it then automatically calculates uh, the carbon credits related with that so that's that's the best solution. Overall, and that those stoves actually have a SIM card in there, which then uh, transmit that exact usage data back to us, and then we can convert that into carbon credits, uh, which we can share back with the customers. Uh, that's that's the ideal solution. Uh, with the biodigesters, we may bring in something like that uh, in the future. At this stage, we're actually doing manual verification where you actually go and uh, sort of survey the customers uh, and, and track how much usage they're doing from there. So that's kind of been the traditional way of doing carbon credits. Uh, I think more and more it's going to shift to data verifying credits like that IoT solution I just mentioned. Mm. Um, because people want greater and greater security to ensure that those credits are actually happening, which is which is fair enough. They're they're paying for a product slash service. So they, they need to be confident that it's that it's occurring.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I guess um, you know, it's history repeating, isn't it, as we're seeing sort of some of the scandals around this, that anything to do with waste, um you know, is an area where there's, historically there's always been room for um, dodgy figures and, and um, you know, mm. exploitation and so on. Um, so, yeah. And Ben, again, I'm, I'm thinking back to when, when we first spoke a few months ago. I remember you talking about how important you thought it was for businesses to have a purpose beyond profit. Um, so can you tell us more about your your views on that?
1: yeah well, i well th- i think it just makes good business sense uh on a on different levels i mean number one for um just generally if you're looking to recruit good people into an organization uh a pure profit motive for people to join your company is not as particularly attractive in this day and age uh, people are often looking for a greater meaning in their work beyond just hey come and make money uh, as such. Um, so I think from a recruiting talent perspective, having that purpose uh, really drives us on. I mean, I've, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm sure I could probably go into a, a corporate gig and, and earn, a, I would like to think, a significant more amount of money. Maybe I'm kidding myself. I don't know. But if if that was really my driver, but that's not really what drives me is the impact that I can achieve uh, through that work. So I think for us, that that's one big point. The second point is if you look at the and not looking in that traditional lens of impact enterprise or or whatever we'd like to call it but if you look at some of the biggest technological shifts in the world they all tend to have a very strong purpose behind them anyway so a lot of those what are now seen as these big corporate uh global multinationals uh, that came out of Silicon Valley if you go back to the early days uh, a lot of them had a, a much stronger purpose than just making a bucket load of money they were really around Connecting people or other things. Now, some of them have probably gone a bit astray. That's that's fair enough, um, but at the same time, and if I take a couple of examples, I think one of the the highest impact technologies in the developing world has been the the smartphone. It's just uh, brought access to information that just wasn't available to a large percentage of the world previously, and that that's a huge benefit. And then another interesting one, because it gets a lot of flack uh, in the developed world, is Facebook. It's been a not great in for a lot of us in the developed developed world but in the developing world it's actually the main communication tool for people to keep in contact with family and friends along with whatsapp being the other one which is now owned by facebook too um and so it's, it's had a huge benefit uh in these in these countries also it's had detriments as well but i think overall there have there have been some hugely positive uh impact technologies to helping people to improve their lives
0: Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, thank you. I'd, I'd certainly not thought about, um, you know, how essential social media can be to you know connecting up rural communities. Mm. Um, and I guess it it brings us back to some of the legislation that's um, under consideration in in Europe and is just going through at the moment in the UK. It's about making sure that there's proper responsibility isn't it behind behind those platforms the platforms themselves mm. can be a force for good um what we've got to make sure is that they're not taken over by people using them for um other other means and so mm. ben over the um the decade or so that you've been working on on um on these challenges with ATEC, what have you struggled with and what's surprised you um struggle with
1: i think the the thing that's always been a struggle, I um, mean, for any impact or social enterprise or even environmental e- enterprise, is you're constantly in this juggling act between making a, a successful, a financially sustainable and successful business versus achieving the impact uh, that you want to uh, achieve in the world, and quite often those two things sit in tension um ideally if you if you can work it out really well they don't sit in tension they're actually compounding on each other uh but generally there's a level of, of tension there so for example i mean for us uh we could really target you know wealthier households achieve greater margins on our products much like you would with a traditional product adoption curve you start with the sort of wealthy customers first and then you move down to the the mass majority from there um but for us selling products to high-end people in in the in the cities within these countries uh is is not where we want to start We, we want to be there for the impact and our products are designed for those groups but then the margins you can achieve from a financial sustainability perspective is quite tight in that situation so i think that's always uh, been probably one of the biggest challenges that, that anyone doing this type of work has, has to undertake. Um, the thing that surprised me is, um, yeah, that we're, that we're still here in some level, I think. Um, it's, it's amazing the resilience. I think we, you underestimate how resilient the organisation becomes. I mean, we're, we're around 60, 65 staff now. Across three countries. Um, and we've got a lot going on. And, you know, cash flow is always a, a challenge. And uh, being able to do the work that we want to do is always a challenge. Um, but, you know, no matter what seems to be thrown at us um, be that COVID, be that global supply chain issues, be that rising inflation um, we're still here. Uh, and that's yeah, that's kind of surprising in a very positive way. I don't know. I I think that's a that's a, a side benefit of doing high impact work is people don't want to see you go. Uh, mm. So I think I think we've been quite lucky in our networks and uh, and our ability to to really get get support behind us when we needed, which we're we're very thankful to.
0: Mm. Yeah, and I guess all those people who have chosen to work for you because of the purpose of the business are also um going the extra mile in terms of applying their creativity and problem-solving skills to thinking about how you can overcome some of the challenges around supply chain disruption and and so on
1: um
0: and if you were talking to another business that wanted to start something circular or go more circular um, with their existing model what would your number one lesson learned be for them
1: um Oh, that's a good question. I think it's there's definitely potential there. Um, I think it would be uh, when it comes to looking at particularly, say, waste of value, be that energy or other outcomes, uh, there, there's typically a lot of potential there. The ability to then convert that potential into reality, both uh, from a scale perspective and from a time perspective there's usually a few more challenges there than you'd expect. So, so it, it'll look great on paper, uh, which is great because we should be doing it. Uh, but don't astra- underestimate the challenges or, or or the number of challenges that will then come to really make that successful in the long term.
0: Mm. And I guess that's particularly true when it's something like the biodigester and the and the stoves that are replacing traditional methods that have been been there for centuries, you know, longer. Uh, millennia um you know trying to convince people that this new technology has all these other benefits that they couldn't have envisaged must must be um you know hard hard for them to sort of you know absorb the um the difference and the and the the reality of it you know just how easily those things will will take shape Hmm. yeah
1: and for us i mean we've been quite deliberate just to do small scale farming households where the households own the biodigester um like the people get excited by and go "Oh, you could do like a community level system you could do a medium-sized farm system you could do a school system with food waste and all this stuff and it's it all looks good on paper but particularly once you move out of single household single farm single asset key person responsible to any type of community level stuff then you you run into all these community related you know local politics this that mm. etc and, and it can make things much more complicated uh, mm. as well so we've yeah. kind of stick to editing as such
0: yeah yeah that's that's yeah. interesting thank you and ben is there someone you'd recommend as a future guest for the podcast
1: oh for for the circular economy one um I'm trying to think uh, anyone off off the top of my head um I think there's some guys, um, uh, oh, the names have just escaped me. There's there's two people doing some fantastic work on uh, waste, uh, waste to fertiliser work um, in Australia and in Kenya, I think it is. Um, Just the names escape me. But they're using um, insects uh, through that process. Uh, to sort of treat treat the waste uh, and then turning those insects into uh, high-quality protein for animal feed uh, from there as well. And I think they're both doing some pretty cool uh, stuff. Olympia is the name of uh, the person running the one in Australia, but I can't remember the, the name of the company off the top of my head. I'll, I'll try and search it up and maybe we can include
0: it in the, the mm. show notes. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Ben. And um, the... Penultimate question, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing to help create a better world, what would that be and why?
1: Hmm. Cool. Before I get to that question, it's Olympia from goterra
0: Okay. Uh, Thank you. Go Terra.
1: G-O-T-E-R-R-A.
0: Great. Um, Thank you.
1: Uh, so on the
0: magic wand,
1: I've got an interesting one because I, I, I knew you were going to ask that question. Um, and uh, it's one thing we've talked about a little bit recently just in blue sky thinking is uh for access to renewable energy to become as cheap uh, and as effective as access to mobile data within the next 20 years and Mm -hmm. i think the reason i raised that one up is is if you went to someone 20 years ago when we first just started really using mobile phones and using data And you said, hey, one day you'll have unlimited access to data. You'll be able to watch video, blah, blah, blah. They'd be like, that's ridiculous. Like I'm paying 40 cents an SMS right now and I'm limited to 120 characters, whatever it is. Uh, And you look at where we've come in the space of 20 years. Um, I very much hope that we get to that within the next 20 years when it comes to abundant access uh, to energy. that's both cheap, reliable and renewable. And if we can get that going, uh, if we can make it as cheap as data is today for us in, in uh, communications, then I think we're we're on a very exciting
0: pathway to to a sustainable planet. Mm, that's yeah, that's a really interesting one, and mm. yeah, you're right. It's it's those when we look look back at things and how expensive they were um, at that point in time, and then as as technologies improved and scales improved and all the rest of it how things get transformed, um, then I don't see that as being impossible either. And I think you're right, mm-hmm. the, the sort of, you know, the household, the single business scale is where we should be aiming for because then people are really on top of the maintenance and, um, you know, not not leaving it to somebody else. And in the biodigester field, I can imagine the difficulties of, you know, somebody deciding that they'll put all their, um, you know, farm, um, crop waste on it or something, and that messes up the the mix inside. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, kind of um, the, the responsibility angle to keep things going in the right way is important, isn't it? And Ben, how can people find out more and get in touch with you and ATEC?
1: Yeah, so so for us, um, obviously our, our website is one of our main portals, which is ATEC um So you can go check us out there and find some more information. Uh, we're also on, um, uh, on, uh, LinkedIn is probably our other main channel that we, we go through, which is again, ATEC Global, uh,
0: and ATEC Global on uh, Twitter and Facebook as well. Thank you. And we'll put all those in the show notes as usual. So Mm -hmm. Ben, thank you for taking us through all the brilliant work that you and the, uh, quite big team now at ATEC have been doing over the last eight to ten years i think it's such an impressive range of innovations with the digester design itself and then things like the pay as you go the carbon credit credits and so on and as we as we heard near the beginning there are just so many benefits for both people and the and the planet in such a rich range of ways so i think it's a really really brilliant um idea and um kind of business model so good luck with the the next phase and um making making a bigger impact for more people thank you yeah and, and thank you
1: catherine and uh yeah keep up the great work and getting word out around the circular economy where there's uh, a lot of upside there for us all all to take advantage of absolutely thanks ben Go. Mm. Cool. thank you
0: i was fascinated by how ben and the team use lean innovation principles to iterate those early designs and to build in design features that overcame the limitations of both traditional and more modern approaches to dealing with manure, food waste and cooking in the home. It's a great example of learning from nature to mimic the brilliant evolutionary design of anaerobic digestion in a cow's stomach. ATEC designed a system that improves on existing modern biodigester technology and solve some of the downsides of the natural process, like methane escaping into the atmosphere. I liked that Ben highlighted the tension between finding a route through to financial sustainability and still being able to make the environmental and social sustainability impacts they'd set out to achieve. Doing a bit more research for these show notes, I came across a couple of good articles from the World Health Organisation and the World Economic Forum. Did you know that in sub-Saharan Africa, more than 80% of the population rely on cooking fuels that pollute? Women can spend up to 20 hours every week on collecting firewood, while cooking on traditional stoves can take four hours each day. Researchers point out that deforestation means that time burden is increasing in many areas forcing women to walk further afield to find the fuel they need, sometimes with risk of attack or injury. The report says that fuel collection has extremely high opportunity costs for women. It creates a kind of vicious cycle. The less opportunity women have to generate income, the less likely it is that their families can fund a transition to cleaner energy. Ben came up with a solution by first getting super clear on the problem itself at the specific local level for the places he described as floating villages in Cambodia. Atec also worked out why both traditional and more modern solutions weren't solving the problem in the optimal way, and then looked at how nature solves this every day inside the stomachs of ruminant animals. I was impressed by the sheer range of problems Atec has solved. On top of providing clean fuel for cooking, using local waste avoids both chopping down trees and having to lug the fuel. And it avoids the issues of methane-emitting excess manure on the farms. And of course, there could be massive benefits from integrating carbon credits with this for the local communities, as well as our living planet and the wider global population. To make the solution even more affordable and circular, Atec has created Biodigesters as a service, and the opportunity for micropayments makes that system more easily affordable. They innovated further by using the Internet of Things to enable payments and carbon credits, and that's likely to be another transformational aspect of this circular solution. Finally, I really liked hearing Ben's approach to building a purpose-led business and how that's helping Atec attract and retain the best talent, even though many of the team could earn a bigger salary in a corporate career. So that's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, Ben Jeffries, co-founder of Atec. Thanks to Zana Jasufi for making this episode possible. And thank you for listening. As usual, you can find out more about Ben Jeffries and Atec And check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at CircularEconomyPodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two, or buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. It takes you through the concepts and practicalities, with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice, and Circular Economy Resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn.